This is uh, toward the end of the book of Isaiah in the 63rd uh, chapter. The prophet says, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the good deeds for which he is to be praised, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel by his compassion and his many kindnesses. He has said, surely they are my people. They are children who will be true to me. And so in all their distress, he too was distressed. And by the angel of his presence, he rescued them. And with his love and his mercy, he saved them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. His name was Phillips Brooks. He is perhaps best known in our day for writing the Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. But he was such a significant influence in the spiritual and political life of the city of Boston that when he died over a century ago, they closed the city for a day so that everyone would have the opportunity to attend his funeral. He displayed wisdom in his writing, in his speaking, and his leadership. And so we might do well to hear from him this morning on this Sunday, first Sunday of Christmas. This is what he said one time. We should not pray for easy lives. We should pray, rather, to be stronger people. We should not pray for tasks that are equal to our strength. Instead, we should pray for strength that is equal to our tasks. The rabbis came 2,000 years before Phillips Brooks, but they would have loved that. One of the sayings that was popular among the rabbis in Jesus' day was to pray to God, let my feet fit the path in front of me. It's taken from Psalm 118, verse 33, where David says to God, make my feet like the feet of a deer. If you've ever been to Israel and you look up in the desert and uh, in, in the rocky regions, you'll see deer called the ibex. And, and it looks like they're, they're, they're on a hill that has a very sharp slope, and it almost looks like they're defying gravity as they stand on that hill. Their feet are made in such a way that they simply do not fall no matter how steep or difficult the path. And so the rabbis taught, rather than pray for an easy path in our life, maybe we should pray for God to give us strength to walk that path. I think about this on Christmas Sunday because this Christmas Sunday, like all the other Christmases before, even though we celebrate the coming of Jesus, there's still pain in the world. There's still wars. And uh, you heard Donna in her prayer pray about the conflict that, that is around the areas on our globe where there's no peace. There's still suffering. There's still illness in our lives, in our families. And it begs the question, or at least raises the question, why is there pain and suffering if Jesus has already come? Why is there suffering in life? And obviously it is the case that there is suffering in life because none of God's people have ever avoided suffering. Let's start with the father of, uh, of the Jews, Abraham. Abraham had a long and difficult journey in his life and waited many, many years to have a child. And then once he had this beloved child, he was asked, to go and uh, offer that child back to God as a test. He spent times of his life in famine. He spent times of his life under oppression. He had difficulties. 
And then if you skip a few hundred years ahead, you get to Joseph, uh, who helped save the people of the world from starvation. And yet you look at his life and realize that for 13 years he spent most of it uh, as a slave or an indentured servant or in prison. Or you skip ahead 400 more years to Moses. And you realize that Moses spent 40 years of his life as a fugitive, running from the Pharaoh, and then another 40 years of his life leading people wandering a desert area. If you skip ahead to the prophets, you find that the prophets, almost without exception, were persecuted by the people, both religious and the pagan people in their day. And then you come to Jesus, and Jesus himself experienced pain and suffering, experienced criticism experienced betrayal, and then finally was crucified. One of my favorite descriptions of Jesus comes again from the prophet Isaiah in the 53rd chapter in what's called the suffering servant passage of the Bible. He says this about the coming Messiah. He is a man acquainted with sorrow. A more modern translation puts it this way. He's a man familiar with pain. Jesus knew struggle in his life, and he knew that there'd be struggle in our life. He made this prediction in the Gospel of John at the end of the 16th chapter. He said, in this world, you will have trouble always. Pain and struggling and difficulty is a part of our life. And so what jumps out at me when we get to the prophet Isaiah in the 63rd chapter, near the end of his wonderful book, he says this about God. He says, in all their distress, that is the people of God's distress, in all their distress, God, too, was distressed. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say God took away all their distress. God made it possible for them to never have pain. Isaiah doesn't say that at all. He just said when God's people suffered, God suffered with them. I think it would be real important for our faith to understand that God's plan is not to prevent us from ever having pain. And if we could understand this reality, I think we'd have a much clearer perception of our own life and of God when pain does come. Because if our idea is that God does never intend for us to ever go through any pain, and we do go through pain, we're left with one of two inescapable conclusions. Either A, there's something wrong with us, or B, there's something wrong with God and God is no longer on the throne. But what if it was never God's plan to prevent all pain. What if God knew that there would be times of suffering in our life? And what if God made allowances for that pain and suffering to do things in our life that simply cannot be done any other way? What if God didn't intend to prevent all of our pain, but rather intended something else? Think about that. For a moment, it might affect our faith life, I think, in critical ways. A lot of people, when they run into pain, one of the first things they jettison is their faith. If their faith can't alleviate the pain, then they don't want any part of the faith. A person who was tempted in that way was C.S. Lewis. A lifelong bachelor, C.S. Lewis, fell in love late in life uh, and uh, married his bride, Joy. And they hadn't been married but a few years, and she became very ill with cancer. And he watched her die. He wrote about this later in a book called A Grief Observed. And at first he railed against God and thought his faith was of no use. But as he prayed and continued to work through this pain that they had endured together, 
he drew this conclusion. He said, I realize the problem here in faith had nothing really to do with God, but it had to do with my expectations. I expected a God who never allowed any pain to exist in the world. Well, according to the Bible, that's not how God works at all. God, for whatever reasons, allows pain and allows difficulty. Well, what could those reasons possibly be? I'm not completely sure, but a couple things I think I can see is that somehow God is able to use pain and difficulty in our life to strengthen and encourage us in ways that, uh, that uh, victory and a smooth, easy, easy path don't strengthen us in life. C.J. Jung once made this observation. He said, there never will be a therapy that will be invented that will eliminate all the difficulties of life. And he said, I believe this because I believe difficulties are necessary for our life to grow. Gerald Sitzer, a man who endured great tragedy when he lost his wife, his mother-in-law, and his daughter in a head-on collision with a drunk driver, drew this observation after working through immense pain and difficulty. He said, our soul is elastic, and it gets stretched by pain. It grows often through loss. Now, granted, we'd rather not have that loss, but one of the results, if we are people of faith, is that pain, that loss, often stretches us and grows us in important ways. I know um, uh, my own uh, life that having been now through a couple deaths, almost back to back and one a year before that, that I know I'm a different person sitting in a room meeting with a family that's lost a loved one. It's not that I, I think I was terrible before, but, but there's something different now when I do that. And that difference could have only come through the experience of pain and loss. Perhaps the best blessing that comes from pain and loss is it has an ability, if we allow the pain and loss, to actually draw us closer to God. C.S. Lewis drew this observation about pain. He said, pain is God's megaphone. In other words, God can get our attention in pain in ways that God doesn't seem to be able to get our attention in times of ease and comfort. There is something that happens that draws us closer to God if we allow uh, that to happen in, in our pain and in our struggle. Because I think one of the things that happens in pain and, and loss and in difficult times is a lot of the things that we've counted on for security and comfort get taken away. We thought we'd always breeze through life if we just knew the right people. Well, suddenly when illness strikes your household, it doesn't really matter who you know. We thought we'd just get through life if we always lived in the right section of town. And sometimes when something strikes, it doesn't matter where you live. The things that we counted on, our education, our family, our knowledge, they get taken away from us when difficult times hit. And if we're faithful, we realize that we are left only with God. And that's not a bad place to be left. And so our relationship can deepen with God in pain. One of the things we talked about a year and a half ago in the summer was the desert experience. And I know this morning it's hard to recreate the desert for you, where the temperatures can get to 120 degrees. And Israel spent 40 years wandering that kind of desert. But if you do the math in the Bible, you will find that God did more miracles in the desert than God did outside the desert in, in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. If you do the math, you will find that God spoke directly to God's servants, and usually Moses, 
many more times in the desert than God spoke to the prophets or anybody else outside the desert. There's something about pain and difficulty that if we allow it, draws us closer to God in ways that we weren't close before. But if God's plan isn't to prevent all pain, what is God's plan? Well, part, I think, of what we talk about at Christmas is this. God's plan is to be present in our pain. Maybe not to prevent it all. God prevents a lot of it, and we'll figure it out one day. But God is is planned to be present in all of our pain. The theological word we use for that at Christmas is incarnation, which means that God left the wonderful, perfect environs of heaven and came to take on all that we were taking on. Uh, Illness, death, poverty, Roman oppression, they all were a part of Jesus' existence. He didn't come to prevent any of that. He came to share that with us. As Isaiah said, in all of our distress, he too was distressed. Nicholas Walterstorff is a theologian at Yale. Years ago, he lost his young son in his mid-20s in a a climbing accident, climbing uh, the Alps. Uh, They did find his son's body. They called him to come over from the States uh, to where his son was. And as he spent the next couple of years wrestling with the grief of the loss of his son, he wrote a book. And the book is titled, entitled, appropriately enough, Lament for a Son. But this theologian has a very interesting comment in that book. He said, we're told in the Bible that no one can look on the face of God and live because the glory of God is so much that it would overwhelm us. He said, I wonder, with all the suffering of God's people and, and the intimate way that God cares for God's people, He said, I wonder if the reason we can't look on the face of God and live is when we look on the face of God, we see all the sorrow that God has taken on from all of God's people. The psalmist says that God has collected our tears in a bottle. What if, says Wolterstorff, the glory of God is his sorrow? And because he shares it so deeply with all of us, none of us could look on even a part of it and live. It is his plan to be present with us. But that's not his whole plan. Isaiah writes 700 years, 600 years, depending on which scholars you you listen to. But he writes long before the Messiah comes. But God is planning. And the Messiah will come. And for generations, there's... Assyrian rule, there's Babylonian rule, there is rule from the Greek Seleucid Empire, and then there's Roman rule. And it looks as if nothing is happening, that God is ignoring the pain and the cries of God's people. But things indeed are happening, and finally the Messiah comes. It reminds me of what happened several years ago, July 24, 2002, just 11 miles from where United Flight 93 went down on September 11th. There was a mining disaster. Nine miners, when someone actually drilled into an abandoned um, uh, mine that had been flooded with water, when they uh, drilled into that, water came at 60 miles an hour on the nine miners. Fortunately, they were able to find an air pocket, and they were surviving. They tried to indicate to the people above that they were alive, and so they tapped out nine times on a number of occasions to let people know that they were under there and they were there. 
Then they could hear the drilling as uh, the people above began to drill um, a, a shaft that would be big enough to rescue the nine miners. They talked about their families. They tried to keep each other's hopes up. They even, uh, those who had something to write with, wrote notes to their loved ones that they hoped would be found. But they could hear the drilling. And then suddenly the drilling stopped. Dead silence. Dead silence for 18 hours. Something must have gone terribly wrong. Perhaps they'd been not forgotten about but given up on. They had no idea. But above the ground, they were switching drill bits. The drill bit had broken. They found a better, stronger one. Above the ground, survivors of, 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 excuse me, family members of those who did not survive Flight 93 had organized a prayer vigil and were driving and flying to this Pennsylvania area. And round the clock, people were praying for the miners. And after 18 hours, the drilling started again and all nine were rescued. But for 18 hours, it seemed that they were alone. It seemed that they had their pain, their struggles, their difficulties, and certain death, and no one was doing anything about it at all. But above the ground, it was a much different story. Purposeful, quick, and prayerful action was being taken around the clock. Sometimes I wonder if in our lives of pain and difficulty on this earth, we're like those miners. And sometimes we find ourselves during those 18 hours and we look around and we don't see and we don't hear. And we assume nothing is happening above. If we assume that, we're most definitely wrong.